official podcast bringing you unique nurse practitioner voices and expertise on issues that matter to NPs and our patients. Pharmacology is an important tool for nurse practitioners, especially for those who treat patients with inflammatory conditions. Biologics are another key part of many treatment plans and include a wide range of products such as vaccines, blood components, gene therapy, and recombinant therapy. They have revolutionized care in several areas, and although they're relatively new agents in the overall practice of healthcare, some have reached their patent expiration and made way for the development of biosimilars. Now, biosimilars have also enriched treatment options for patients with inflammatory diseases, such as rheumatoid plaque or psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis. They're also commonly used in the oncology setting. They've been particularly useful in patients who have been non-responsive or intolerant to conventional therapies. And as of September 2021, the FDA has approved 31 biosimilar products across 11 molecules. Navigating biosimilars can be intimidating for patients and even their providers. In this engaging episode, nurse practitioners Lisa Kennedy Sheldon and Sharon Dudley Brown navigate biosimilars from the FDA approval process to advocating for and educating patients on biosimilars and helping them understand what's best for their current situation. Hi, welcome. I'm Lisa Kennedy Sheldon, and I'm an adult nurse practitioner. And I work in an oncology setting where we frequently have patients receive infusions for monoclonal antibodies or even for growth factors. Increasingly, we're seeing the use of biosimilars in my practice. Yes, and I'm Sharon Dudley-Brown. I'm a nurse practitioner and I see patients in gastroenterology, specifically patients who have Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And I have seen a huge increase in the use of biosimilars over the last few years, um, mainly related to anti-TNF therapy, with many, which many of our patients are on. So, Lisa, um, it's nice to talk to you today a little bit about um, biosimilar use for inflammatory conditions. So, can you start by giving us a little bit of a historical perspective on this topic? Um, and what did you or currently see happening in your clinical practice? Yeah, thank you, Sharon. It's been an interesting time over particularly the last five years, seeing the increased use of biosimilars. Now, as we know, there's some overlap in how biosimilars are used for inflammatory conditions like what you see, as well as for cancer-related conditions. In fact, actually, the first biosimilar in the United States was for filgrastrum in 2015. But actually, the work on biosimilars predates that by quite a bit, actually. It was actually in 2009 that the World Health Organization first published guidelines about how to create what they called then similar biotherapeutics. And so that became the international norm for evaluating biosimilars. But it took quite a while before we had the first biosimilar approved in the US in 2015. So Lisa, how, how do you describe the difference 
between biosimilar and generic drugs? Because you mentioned both of those. Yeah, so, you know, having uh, lived through the era where we switched to more and more generic drugs uh, versus the brand name drugs, we had a lot of questions even then about, you know, why are you changing a drug? So patients were asking, you know, am I getting the brand name or the generic? And is it going to be the same effectiveness? Is it just as safe? So although generics and biosimilars are very different in terms of how they're approved by the FDA, as well as how they're covered by insurance companies now, we do get very similar questions. So you have to have a different set of vocabulary when talking about biosimilars versus generics. So in relationship to this, could you give us a definition of a biosimilar and then we can sort of go from there? Sure. So I, I think that's always a great place to begin, right? When we're talking about what, what, what's this new vocabulary that we have. And we understand, you know, well, as providers and prescribers, that there are different manufacturing processes for different drugs. But this is like a whole new realm. We've talked about monoclonal antibodies. We've talked about biologic drugs. But when we're talking about a biosimilar project, a product, we're actually talking about a drug that's manufactured in a different way. It's actually a drug that's manufactured by bacteria or other living organisms. Sure, sure. That's an important question because we hear uh, the terms reference product, or innovator product or originator drug as the original drug that received the patent. Sometimes these are referred to as small molecule drugs because they were smaller in molecular weight um, than the newer drugs that are created using the biological process that creates a biosimilar. So a biosimilar drug is shown to be highly similar to the reference product or originator or innovator drug and has no clinically meaningful difference between the originator drug and the biological product. And the measurements are on safety, purity, and potency. So do purity, safety, and potency mean that biosimilars have the same effectiveness as the originator product? Ah, the important question, because that's the kind of question you're going to get from your patients. Is this, gonna, is this gonna work the same? And that's an excellent question. Because it's a different approval process, they're not actually tested for effectiveness because they are so similar to the original reference or innovator product that they work in the same way. So the testing for the Food and Drug Administration is a different pathway for biosimilars. And they look at them for safety, purity, and potency. Mm. Okay, thank you. That's, that's really helpful. So it's amazing that to this date now, we have 31 approved biosimilars in the United States for 10 reference product. 15 of these new biosimilars are for inflammatory diseases. So Sharon, I know this is, this is your world for sure, and you've seen a lot of um, what's happened uh, with biosimilar uptake in your practice. Would you like to talk more about how that approval process happened and how you saw and how you explain the differences between those original drugs, the uh, reference products and the new biosimilars? 
Right. So this is a little tricky. Um, and I've, uh, I do have to sort of gauge how much information the patient really wants to hear. We just talked about how the biosimilar has to demonstrate that it's highly similar to the reference product and that you have to demonstrate the similarity is very much related to the approval, as you mentioned. So it's a different approval process. It's not an FDA approval process. So I tell patients to remember back um, to talk about when we talked about some of the originator products, um, for example, infliximab or adalimumab, and that they all had to undergo clinical trials, right? There's the phase one, phase two, and phase three trials that are done according to each indication. So again, patients who have Crohn's disease, they're in a very specific trial only for the effectiveness, if phase three, right, of infliximab or adalimumab in Crohn's disease. So each trial is developed and conducted per each indication. And it's a very different, again, for the biosimilar, which usually doesn't have those types of clinical trials. Again, the focus is on the characterization of the molecule, as you had mentioned before, and it does not have to undergo trials for each indication. It has to only be similar, a biosimilar, to the reference product. So something like infliximab, which has over 15 indications, so different disease states, right? Um, it only has to show its biosimilarity to the infliximab molecule. So it's a very different testing process. Now, having said that, patients get a little nervous then and they say, well, I have Crohn's disease, so I, I don't know if this biosimilar is going to be you know, the right thing for me. And this is where you have to follow up that statement about how the approval process is different with the statement about it is a bio, it's a, considered the biosimilar medication to the reference product of the infliximab and how we know as clinicians, we know that these biosimilars have been used and that the outcomes um, have been very positive, getting back to your statement about you know the safety and the efficacy um, and monitoring side effects that we know from those trials that they have been showing very similar efficacy outcomes. Mm, this, uh, you know, as you're talking about you know, biosimilarity, and we're talking about the difference between the drugs. I, I can hear both of us thinking about the different wording and how you would talk about this with a patient when a patient says, well, so is it like a generic? How do you answer right. that? And it's, it's even though we are really not supposed to use the word generic, right? We're supposed to constantly talk about the word biosimilar. I think the word generic is very easy for patients to understand, right? That they know about a brand name versus generic. They all know this. And therefore, it's a very similar association. So I can say you can consider personally, you can consider this biosimilar to be like a generic. However, 
you can't use that term generic because it's really a biosimilar and the product originally, right, you just said is this very complex uh, development of the medication. Yeah, it, you know, I think it is. And I think that makes it always, a, you know, you wonder with the sort of health literacy of your patients and their understanding of uh, what that drug might mean for them. I think most patients are thinking, is this going to work for me? Is it, am I going to have the same effect? Because goodness knows they don't want another flare. Right. Right. Of their right. inflammatory condition. No, absolutely. But I think in that sense, people have the same perception about generics, right? Like, should I be really taking the generic or should you be prescribing, you know, the brand name for me? So I think it's a similar perception. And that's when I say is that we know because these biosimilars now have been out for a number of years, uh, we know that they are um, that the efficacy is very similar to the reference or originator product. And so that should allay some of their concern over you know, this it's because it's a whole new terminology, right? Biosimilars that we're talking to patients about. Um, so yes, I think I think having that you know notion of saying it's similar to a generic medication, but these are such complex molecules that we all in healthcare call them biosimilars. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. And 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 that's probably only one of the challenges we I think we've noticed um, to implementing biosimilars is making sure we can educate our patients and they are you know participating you know in a in a in a shared decision making model right for what's going to happen with their care. But we know there's a lot of other factors implementing um, to implementing biosimilars in the clinical setting. I wonder if you could talk about some of those factors that are um, external to the sort of nurse practitioner and patient. Um, conversations that are impacting the uptake of biosimilars? Sure. So um, this has also been sort of complicated. I'm, I'll, I'll start with like the adult population. I only see adults, but um, I do know about the pediatric application of biosimilars. So, But starting with adults um, and implementing biosimilars in the clinical setting, I think it's very easy when I have a conversation with a patient who will be newly starting one of these anti-TNF uh, medications, because what I do is I mention that term biosimilar right up front. I say, I'm going to put you on infliximab, but I say, you may hear different words being used because we have this concept of biosimilars. I tell them the names of the current approved biosimilar for infliximab, and I say, most of this decision is now made by the payers. So it's made by your insurance company and or your pharmacy benefit managers or what's ever on formulary for the infusion center where the patient goes to get their infusions. So this is where it gets complicated um, and it's not straight. The decision is not straight from the payers or straight from the pharmacy benefit managers, or straight from formulary. It's sort of a combination. Um, and I don't have any control over which of those will be uh, the approved medication. But I tell them that with confidence, a biosimilar of the infliximab is fine to go ahead and get started on. So in the patient who is uh, a patient, let's say, who's been on infliximab 
on the originator or reference product for a number of years, because I have some of those patients, this is when it's important. And I like to do this face-to-face conversation that this isn't something that I can do successfully over the telephone or over using the electronic medical record uh, patient portal is that I mentioned that right now we're seeing a lot of uptake in the use of biosimilars. And I say, because you're on infliximab, you may be switched to one of these biosimilars. I say that this is called non-medical switching, meaning that I'm not making the decision or it's not being made, the switch is not made because of a medical issue. It still means the drug is effective, working, patients doing okay, um, but it's called non-medical switching. And I see this, and year after year, I see much more um, of the uptake of biosimilars and that this switch will be um, told to them usually from a letter from their insurance company. And then this is when we get into that whole conversation of, you know, what is a biosimilar and the approval process, which we just spoke about. And I talk about the trials supporting the use of biosimilars in patients who have Crohn's or colitis. In addition, what has also complicated this landscape is that patients, maybe their insurance changes or the insurance uh, renegotiates contracts. And so, in January, they decide that they want all their patients to switch to a different biosimilar. All of our guidelines in gastroenterology support only one switch and not switching among the biosimilars. So this is where I try to advocate for the patients um, that we, have, we don't have good data on switching among the biosimilars. We do have data going from the reference product to a biosimilar and even then back to the reference product. However, we don't have any data and especially long-term data on switching among the biosimilars, which is seemingly happening um, in the marketplace right now. So, The patients who are, the only time that um, I advocate to make sure a patient is not switched to a biosimilar is when the patient is pregnant. And I also advocate if they have just started and they're just sort of in the beginning of induction and they are medically very unstable. This is when I will advocate and go to the insurance company um, to Uh, ask to not have them be switched. And typically, if it's one of those two cases, they will agree to revisit the switch in another year. And again, in the case of the pregnant patient, in a year, the patient won't be pregnant again. And then typically in the year, the other patient who is sick, um, hopefully is clinically uh, well. Now, in the pediatric uh, world of IBD, the recommendations from NASPAGAN, which is their um, GI uh, uh, organization, is that biosimilars are only recommended for a new start. Um, again, getting back to infliximab, um, 
not to switch if a patient is already on that reference product. So in pediatrics, it's pretty black and white. Um, although insurance frequently companies try to get uh, patients to switch to the biosimilar, uh, but uh, usually uh, the pediatric patients are not switched. They are just, um, it would be a new start on that uh, medication. So I hope that uh, didn't confuse you, Lisa, and made sense. Oh. <laughs> Oh, no, Sherry, that was a fantastic um, description about a lot of the issues related to biosimilars and, and switching. And I, I, as you were talking, I was thinking, uh, how do your patients, what is their response when you say, okay, we're going to be switching to the biosimilar of the drug that you've been on for many of them for many years? What is their response? Uh, well, the response, as you could imagine, ranges from you know, sort of, okay, that's fine. If you think it's fine, I'm good. Uh, to absolutely not. This drug is, you know, keeping me well. I've done great for X number of years and I don't want to stop this medication. Um, so the responses have a huge range and this is why this really takes a conversation and sometimes multiple conversations. I do refer them to the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, which does support the use of biosimilars. And patients sometimes feel better then about um, switching. And we do talk about the data, as I mentioned um, before. The patients say, well, what if I don't want to switch? Um, and there's really not, unfortunately, a lot that I can do related to this, um, which I think they don't like that part of it, the non-medical switching you know, that it's sort of somebody else telling the patient and myself that the patient cannot continue on the originator product. So, um, you know, they get angry and can get upset. Usually they soon um, come to understand and sometimes they do their own work. Again, whether it's going to the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation um, or um, I encourage them to be an advocate then um, and help to campaign against non-medical switching, if that's sort of how they feel. Typically, it just takes a little bit longer with certain patients. And because sometimes the interval is six to eight weeks, that's about how long they have um, to come around. We try not to switch them off of <laughs> this medication because um, as long as it's been working, um, I tell them that I feel the biosimilar will work just as well and your Crohn's or your colitis um, will still be um, maintained in a remission. You know, Sharon, you talk about this, uh, particularly the issue of trust between patients and their nurse practitioners and their, and their other prescribing providers, and how important it is to be able to talk um, in a knowledgeable, evidence-based way about biosimilars. And, and your confidence in talking with your patient can often allay many concerns as they, as they move along. So it, it is important to understand and be able to talk about biosimilars in a way that patients can understand, make an informed choice, and also help them advocate for themselves if, if that's where they feel they want to stay on a particular drug. And I, I bring this up because... Um, there are some changes coming up, as you know, um, with interchangeability now. 
And and I, I'm kind of jumping ahead here because I was thinking about um, your comment about switching back. So before we talk about interchangeability, I want to talk a little bit about what switching back might entail. So they're on the reference product, they go on the biosimilar, and for some reason, either payer issues or, or perhaps through ongoing assessment, a decrease in effectiveness that could, can happen, and they go back on the reference product. Could you give me an, a little bit more, uh, you know, an idea about how that could happen and, and what you're watching for in your patients? Yeah, so, um, you know, the longer we have biosimilars, sort of the more I see this. Um, so really after a switch, um, and I tell the patient this, you know, even though I'm reassuring them that this medication should be effective for their Crohn's and colitis, I have to make sure that I follow up with them. So I want them, once they've started those infusions of the biosimilars, I want them to have an appointment with me like in two months, um, maybe three months after. So after one or two of these infusions, I want to make sure that they, that they felt fine, that their infusion did not cause any reactions. And I want to make sure that their Crohn's and colitis still is in remission. Um, so it's really looking at that side effect and also um, whether they have any flare. Then there's sort of the ongoing, right, which is just typical of patient care in IBD is making sure your patient, you know, remains in remission. If they get nervous and are really nervous about switching to a biosimilar, I may do more um, assessment of patient reported outcomes or their symptoms and then looking at different biomarkers. So I may say, well, let's check your blood work for CRP sed rate. Let's do a fecal calprotectin to look for any increased inflammation. That seems to allay their fears. And then actually they are quite agreeable also to have a colonoscopy, um, say six months after starting the biosimilar. So, that, so we all know that they are still um, you know, in remission. And then I've only really had one episode where a patient... Um, wanted to and switched back to the reference product. This just actually happened recently um, that she felt she was getting an increased number of infections on the biosimilar. And I said to her, well, we know that with anti-TNF products, one of the biggest side effects is infections. And she said, well, I never had an infection on the um, originator. This was infliximab. Um, and she actually changed her health insurance to switch back to an insurance that would approve the originator product so she could get off of the biosimilar. Um, so this just happened. So I'm anxious to follow up with her to see if that's the case where she did. There has only been case reports in the inflammatory bowel disease literature at this time about patients switching back to the originator product. And usually it's either a decrease um, in the um, effectiveness or it's different side effects with the biosimilar. Um, but again, only case reports right now. So, um, but again, it's a little out of my hands because it's really dependent on the insurance to um, cover that. 
Yeah, that's an, that's a really interesting one. And, and I think we've all lived through the brand name versus generic issue where we have the little box on the prescription that says brand name only, where people think they're not, it's not working as well for them. Uh, right. So, you know, I, it's, it's an interesting, it'll be an interesting time to watch that as we go forward. Are there certain people where perhaps the reference product works better than the biosimilar drug? And I, I, I will have to watch that as we go on. And it's all based on individual patient. And so that, that ongoing assessment that you described, um, you know, very well about, you know, follow up, you know, within one to two infusions, you know, perhaps ongoing testing or even colonoscopy to make sure that um, patients are doing well. You know, in the, in the world of oncology, where we started using biosimilar growth factors um, six years ago now, uh, we would have seen that immediately, you know, versus an inflammatory condition. If you give somebody a growth factor and their white count doesn't go up after chemotherapy, you, you know that in seven to 10 days. So it's pretty quick. You would find out whether or not the biosimilar was working, right? It's very apparent. Um, and, and we saw a very, a very smooth switch over to the biosimilars for pegfilgrastum and filgrastrum um, after chemotherapy. But there was always, you know, that, that original discussion about, you know, is it going to work the same way? And so for us, it was a little easier because we could see it right away, whether it was going to work or not. And I, I didn't see, I don't think, oh, no, that's not true. I, we did see once where we switched back um, to the reference product for Pegfeldgrastrum. So it's unusual. Well, you know, it was early on uh, when people were first getting used to using biosimilars. Um, so, you know, as I say, five, six years ago. Um, and of course, that could be a life-threatening side effect, right? If you don't get the white blood cell count up and they have a life-threatening episode of febrile neutropenia, you've got a, you've got a significant problem. So that wasn't a hard one to negotiate at the time, but it's unusual to see them switch back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So Lisa, you mentioned um, a few minutes ago about that notion of interchangeability. Um, and there's two drugs, uh, two biosimilars with the FDA status of interchangeability right now, insulin and adalimumab. So can you describe or define interchangeability and then Really, how will interchangeability impact um, patient care? Yeah, I, it's, a, it's a really good question. And it's a concept um, that I, I'm going to uh, go back to our original reference about generics versus brand name, because I think people can, you know, historically can take that um, experience and sort of think about it going forward with biosimilars. Um, so many insurers, as we know, have... Uh, you know, increase, included in their formulary the generic version as their preferred coverage. And so we see this for many, many different medications. As we go forward, we're going to actually have a biosimilars being interchanged for the reference product for these two drugs in particular. Now, insulin, I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of leave on the side for a moment because that's less, less relevant to our conversation today, but certainly an important conversation given some of the price increases we saw of insulin in the past and what a significant impact that had on patients and their ability to cover an ongoing chronic illness. Um, but with the brand new um, status of interchangeability for the adalumumab, 
um, just last, uh, just in October of 2021, we may see that drug being exchanged, the original reference product, Adalumumab Humira, for the biosimilar. And why this is important is inherent in the definition. It can be switched without contacting the prescriber. So this is a, um, I, I think, a significant change. We're seeing some pushback, um, especially by some of the state formularies um, and the state pharmacy organizations saying, uh, you need to let the prescriber know you're going to be switching the reference product for the biosimilar product. And I think we're going to have to watch this going forward. So this, the insulin seemed to happen rather smoothly, but now that we're talking about changing a medication that people may have been on for quite a while and not contacting their prescriber before switching them to the biosimilar, we're going to may see some pushback, not just from patients, but from the prescribers themselves who want to be contacted. So this is going to be a, um, a time to watch uh, what happens in the state pharmacy organizations. Uh, people need to be aware of this change happening um, and follow up in their particular state where they practice. Because it's, if, you don't, if you're not notified as the prescriber, you may not be able to know when to assess patients. Like you talk about your one to two infusions. When do they need assessment? When did the change take place? So there, you know, we'll see what happens with that. I, I, what do you think about that? The interchangeability for adalimumab? Yeah, it makes me nervous um, on many levels. Um, I mean, right now I am notified when a drug that I prescribe is not approved. And, you know, the uh, insurance company would like them to use the biosimilar. Um, so uh, not knowing, not being told that, right, I prescribe adalimumab and then it's substituted for biosimilar definitely makes me nervous. Um, you're right. I spent time talking about the patient assessment and how I would, um, I mean, I, I assess patients very frequently when they first start on any medication. But if this happens midway, right, they're already on ad adalimumab for a year or two, and then suddenly they switch to the biosimilar um, I won't know that I need to then assess them pretty, um, you know, more frequently and then sooner than I typically do when they are doing well in remission from their Crohn's or colitis. Um, in addition, it would really impact how I educate patients. Again, going back to my discussion, you know, with a new start of, of, uh, infliximab, I educate patients that, you know what, you may actually be given infliximab biosimilar and that's okay. You know, you're starting out and it may be this biosimilar. So if this happens though, sort of in the middle of getting their therapy, um, it's also important um, that I would educate all these patients uh, more frequently about this notion of interchangeability. And um, I, I can only imagine that the patients are probably not going to be too happy about suddenly, right, being told, oh, we're switching you to a biosimilar without my knowledge. I mean, right now I know it. So I, once I'm told, I reach out to the patients to give them that information um, and that to tell them that, you know, these biosimilars 
um, the, the information we have both from U.S. studies and European studies have shown that the Crohn's and colitis will stay in remission using the biosimilars. Um, but they, I think having people be given that information ahead of time is very um, important. You know, Lisa, we haven't really talked about that nocebo effect, which is sort of the, it's a negative effect um, of, you know, any medication that, um, that a patient is on. And there's studies about the nocebo effect when patients had to switch from the originator to a biosimilar, uh, sometimes maybe they weren't really educated on this switch to a biosimilar. And those are the patients that contacted their provider and said, I just had my infusion of infliximab biosimilar and I am having problems. And this sometimes has resulted that they actually stop taking the medication and you know, wanting to go on a different class or a different type of medication. And so we know that the studies, actually the one done in rheumatology on the nocebo effect showed that the physician assessment of their rheumatoid arthritis in this example um, didn't change, but patients' perception is that the rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis got worse on the biosimilar. And so that's why it's important. I mentioned before about having this objective information in, in my patients, right? It's markers of inflammation and a calprotectin, which measures inflammation in the stool. So if we have these objective markers to say, everything's great, you have no inflammation, uh, that's really mitigating, you know, this nocebo effect. But the best, as we know from looking at these studies, the best way is to head off this nocebo effect by lots of patient education up front and early. And so I just worry that with interchangeability, we're going to run into more of a nocebo effect. Yeah, not to go back to the generics, but to go back to generics again, we saw some of this happen when generic drugs came out as well where people thought they were, weren't working as well. So some of the educational component may be very similar, right? When you're not getting that, that product that you trust, that you know worked for your inflammatory disease, and now you've been switched, there's always that, that sense that perhaps it's not going to work as well. And it was the same when we switched to generics as well. So it does require that ongoing assessment of your individual patient to understand what's happening, as well as those objective markers that may help you in making the decision about whether your patient is doing well on the new, new the biosimilar product versus the reference product, as well as reassuring to your patient. Right. Now, Lisa, you mentioned something about state pharmacy laws um, impacting this um, notion of interchangeability and substitution. Yeah, that, and this is all relatively new. And I think since the second uh, drug has now been uh, approved for interchangeability of the biosimilars that we've discussed, then I think this is starting to um, uh, impact um, regulatory bodies at the state level. And I think it's, we're, it's something we're all going to have to be watching about how this is going to move forward. So as much as you know, the FDA is a national organization, the drugs that are used and have interchangeability 
are going to vary state to state right now. So let's we're going to have yeah. to keep an eye on what's going and to happen that's, here. And that's a really important point for nurse practitioners, um, you know, who are listening to this podcast, that they be aware that each state, you know, could have very different um, regulations around this. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be an interesting time. I. I also, I was thinking as you were uh, talking and, and describing so well, you know, how you follow your patients and how you educate them and reassure them um, that we walk a line um, with our patients. We want to feel confident uh, when we talk with them. We want to be articulate and use the vocabulary uh, that um, really conveys the biosimilar product and the manufacturing and the testing because they trust us to be providing them with the information that's in their best interest. And every nurse practitioner feels that way when they're taking care of their patient. So we walk that line. At the same time, we also realize we're in a sort of a new realm right now, especially with a large number of biosimilars being approved. I mean, we're at 31 now. I mean, we're going to see this more and more in practice. And so we want to start to get more educated and feel more confident talking about this but mostly because we want to understand how it impacts our patients and how they're and how they're doing with their inflammatory conditions with the biosimilar drugs. It's not that we don't trust them. It's just that we're in a new chapter now where these manufacturing processes are able to create the drugs with a similar potency and purity at a at a at a decreased cost. And that is where I think patients may, we have to be careful about when we talk about it with patients, that we're not giving them the cheaper drug, as in lower quality, right? Lower efficacy. And we talk about it more as an affordable drug that has been tested, or we would, you know, or we would be not thinking about this drug for them. You know, so we want to make sure that we're walking the line between being articulate and knowledgeable, and at the same time, following our patients carefully so that we continue to have that trusting relationship that our patients come to expect, but we also value every day when we're taking care of our patients. Oh, ab- absolutely. No, no, that's right. Uh, it's interesting. My patients haven't saved money at all by being on the biosimilars. And so many of them are quite angry that the cost savings does not roll to them. Um, but in a in a larger population health perspective, these are incredibly cost-saving medications because the biologics are so expensive. Um, and so I uh, liken it to you know what's happen- happening now with the COVID pandemic in that we want to really think about the greater good and thinking about costs of healthcare in this country compared to other countries. Um, and then that usually makes them feel a little bit better about the fact that maybe they're not saving any money, um, but it is better for our um, the GDP that we're spending on healthcare in this country. Yeah, yeah, no, and that's uh, that's really great. And I did, you know, I wanted to bring up one other thing because I, you know, I certainly have been watching um, the evolution of drugs and watching the biosimilars come into the market, and we look at their names. Right. And they have a hyphen and then four letters that are really um, sort of not anything that means anything other than the suffix at the end. And what I thought was fascinating and uh, something I've learned recently is that starting in 2019, all new biologic drugs 
have to have this four-letter suffix, whether they're a biosimilar or they're a new biologic drug. So we can't just think that if we see this big long name with a hyphen and then the four letters, that it's a biosimilar. Because going forward, all new biologics are also going to have this. So we all have a lot to learn um, as new manufacturing processes can create drugs that are uh, more affordable for patients, better for the healthcare system, and can still help our patients control their inflammatory conditions. Right. I mean, that's the bottom line, right, is helping their inflammatory conditions improve and to get them in remission and keep them in remission. Um, And uh, so, yes, this is an exciting time to be involved. I agree. Well, thank you, Sharon. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. And I I know we're going to have uh, more impact of biosimilars going forward and a lot more to talk about. Yes, Lisa, thank you. This was a great conversation. Thank you, Lisa and Sharon, for joining us on NP Pulse. I want to personally thank you for sharing your expertise and experiences with biosimilars. And to our listeners, I hope you found this episode as valuable as I did and can apply some of what was discussed in your practice. If you want to learn more about biosimilars while earning continuing education credit, visit the AANPCE Center at aanp.org slash center and check out the recently launched activity, Biosimilars, Changing the Treatment Landscape for Inflammatory Conditions. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back regularly for new episodes. Thank <laughs> you.